Wow. They went from zero to Nixon in no time flats. Oh, we blew past Nixon long ago, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, on KODX in Seattle, Washington, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, and KKRN in Round Mountain, California, as well as AM950 KTNF in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We also stream coast to coast and around every uh, coast to coast and around the globe every day. For your convenience on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Rats and sinking ships. For some reason, Desi Doyen, all of those things are on my are coming to mind today for some reason. Gosh, I can't imagine why. For a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, some of which we will be discussing momentarily uh, with uh, former assistant U.S. attorney Randall Eliason following Monday's crazy federal court hearing regarding attorney-client privileged documents between Donald Trump and his supposed personal attorney and self-declared fixer Michael Cohen, as well as, oddly enough, Fox News's Sean Hannity comes into play there. Uh, and uh, as the noose is seemingly tightening in Robert Mueller's special counsel probe into uh, alleged conspiracy with Russia before the 2016 election and Trump's apparent obstruction of justice to prevent any investigation into the matter. But setting those rats and sinking ships aside for the moment, let's start here in a late report Does that is too late for our Green News report today, but which is... Uh, that also is coming up in a little bit. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but President Trump's top advisor, top advisor for energy and environmental policy is stepping down. Michael Catanzaro, who has headed domestic energy and environmental issues at the White House's National Economic Council, plans to leave next week and return to CGCN Group the law and lobbying firm where he previously worked. So that's right. He was an anti-environmental lobbyist. Then he went to work in the White House as President Trump's top energy and environment guy. And now he is leaving to go back to the very same lobbyist firm. 
That's a lot of swamp draining going on right there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The revolving door is spinning like a tornado. The White House confirmed the move on Tuesday. It was first reported by Greenwire. Catanzaro has worked at the White House uh, since very early in Trump's term, since February 2017. He was a leading figure in the administration's uh, effort to carry out Trump's aggressive deregulatory and pro-fossil fuel agenda. No doubt he will receive a hero's welcome when he gets back to his firm. He played a significant role in the ongoing uh, rollback of Obama's uh, administ- uh, the Obama administration's clean power plan, its clean water rule. Steve Clark, the lobbying firm's managing partner, said in a statement, We are thrilled to welcome Mike back to CGCN. I'm sure they are. <laughs> he says our firm is like a family, and we are proud Mike wanted to come back to us after his service in the government. He's a tireless worker with an unrivaled command of energy and environmental policy and an even stronger sense of integrity. That's what they're calling that now. Yeah, because nothing says integrity like being a lobbyist, going to the White House, dismantling all the stuff that your clients uh, wanted you to dismantle as a lobbyist and then going back to them and uh, getting a pat on the back. Yeah, that's the real mission accomplished. They say, uh, Clark says, uh, Catanzaro's experience in the White House will be an invaluable resource for current and future clients. <laughs> yeah, who are going to now profit even more than they did before My- from his work that's dismantling all these climate and pollution standards. Myron E. Bell, remember him, Myron E. Bell? Uh, he, uh, he's the director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Center for Energy and Environment. And a rabid climate science denier. He uh, says that Catanzaro left under, quote, continuing chaos at the White House. His departure comes just two months after George Davis Banks stepped down from his post as Trump's leading advisor for international energy and environment issues, which included the Paris Agreement. So all of his energy and environment guys are are gone. How will he ever make energy and environment sound energy and environment policy now? Uh, Banks, by the way, had left because he was unable to get a security clearance since he smoked marijuana years ago. It's unclear why Catanzaro is uh, leaving. I have a theory. What's that? He's cashing out. Yeah, getting out while the getting's good? Exactly, getting out while he still has a, a bit of a shred of a reputation intact and having done so well for his clients. His uh, clients include... Uh, or at least they previously did at uh, CGCN, uh, the American Chemistry Council, Coke Industries, Devon Energy Corp. Is that Devon or Devon? I never know. I think it's Devon. And American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. So they can welcome him back. Uh, All of that, by the way, as a top coal lobbyist is confirmed by the Senate as the number two at the EPA. Uh, as that agency's uh, uh, head, Scott Pruitt, comes under still more fire today, as we will discuss in our Green News report, though not actual fire, as he uh, seems wildly paranoid that he will uh, face. We'll try to get to that in a little bit. Uh, But uh, today's tax day, which Donald Trump began with this tweet, he said, employment is up, taxes are down, enjoy. Followed that up a little bit later with another related tweet. So many people are seeing the benefits of the tax cut bill. Everyone is talking. Really nice to see. 
Well, I'm not sure, but I suspect that uh, those comments may have something to do with uh, a new poll out today suggesting that while Republicans have been banking on their huge deficit-blowing tax cut, uh, mainly for rich people and corporations, as their best bet for saving themselves in this year's crucial midterm elections, that plan may not be working out so well. As congressional Republicans fight to preserve their majorities, they may need to find a weapon more powerful than the big December tax cuts, says CNBC. A new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows that the tax cut law, which was never broadly popular, has now sagged in public esteem of late. Sad. Just 27% of Americans call it a good idea. Just 27% of Americans are supporting this tax cut as a good idea. That is down from 30% in January. Now, this was supposed to be more, get, get only more popular as Americans began receiving larger paychecks in February. Yet here we are in mid-April, and support for the massive tax cuts seems to be going in the wrong direction for Republicans, at least according to this poll by NBC and the Rupert Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal. I'm sure Donald Trump will find some way to call it fake news anyway, fake poll anyway. Uh, moreover, CNBC reports a majority give thumbs down on the plan when asked to consider its potential effects. Just 39 percent foresee a positive impact from a stronger economy, more jobs and more money in their pockets. Just 39 percent. 53 percent foresee a negative impact from higher deficits and disproportionate benefits for the wealthy and big corporations. The uh, pollsters uh, say that this is not a great starting point for Republicans here. Republicans began learning that lesson last month during a special House election in Pennsylvania. GOP strategists found that the tax cuts were an ineffective message against the Democratic candidates, and they dropped the issue as Election Day approached. What are the Republicans going to use now? That's anyone's guess. The Democratic victory in uh, in that uh, district in Pennsylvania, a district that uh, Donald Trump had won by 20 percent, uh, 20 percentage points back in 2016, showed that the tax cuts are, quote, a political loser, according to Dave Wasserman, House analyst at the Cook Political Report. Well, that's, I think, because Americans are finally catching on to the idea that GOP tax cuts always mean huge deficits and they always mean that the middle class is going to have to pay for it. Some Americans are catching on. Men, <laughs> apparently, still favor the tax cuts, although less strongly than the women who oppose it by a three to one uh, margin. Uh, rural residents still favor the tax cut. Older men and men without college degrees, especially. However, working class, middle class and upper class Americans all hold negative views of the tax cut law. So there's that. That may be yet another reason why Republicans in Congress are getting the hell out at a record pace. We got too busy here last week to cover it. But Republican U.S. Congressman Blake Farenthold of, uh, of Texas, who was discovered to have used congressional money to pay off a staffer who'd accused him of sexual misconduct, he abruptly quit 
the House last week after previously saying that he planned to resign at the end of the current term. And now today, another Republican member who had planned to retire at the end of the year says he's also getting out right now instead. U.S. Congressman Charlie Dent announced Tuesday morning that he is resigning. He's a moderate Republican representing Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, where I used to live. Uh, that's the 15th Congressional District. He says he's going to be stepping down in the coming weeks, well before his term expires at year's end. Dent had announced last October he would not seek re-election to an eighth two-term, uh, an eighth two-year term. A special election will be scheduled once Democratic Governor Tom Wolf gets an official resignation notice with a date, according to Wolf. Uh, this is likely to become yet another expensive race for Republicans to run uh, to defend yet another seat in advance of the midterms just a few months later in a district where Trump won in 2016 by just about eight points. That's far fewer than the 20 points Trump had won by in the district, which Democrats took over from Republicans in that special election just last month. Uh, he had uh, Dent had cited personal reasons for the decision uh, several months ago to not run for re-election. Uh, he was lamented the marginalization of the quote-unquote governing wing of the Republican Party as the GOP has moved farther and farther to the right. Dent didn't vote for Trump himself. He uh, instead backed CIA officer Evan McMullen. He has criticized Trump's use of Twitter to announce policies. Uh, he denounced the president's alleged vulgar reference to developing countries back in January. Uh, he also derided the ban on transgender people in the military. He broke with his party as well, uh, voting last May against a failed attempt to dismantle Obamacare. He did, however, vote for that tax overhaul signed into law in December. On Friday, Dent helped to introduce bipartisan legislation aimed at protecting the ongoing investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. But he will be leaving before any such measure uh, is likely, if it ever is, to come up for a vote in the U.S. House. Republicans in Congress are retiring in historic numbers this year. We're now looking at nearly 50 Republicans in the House and Senate who have announced that they are retiring. Twenty five of those are retiring without having any other job to go to or have already left office. That's compared with just 10 House Democrats. And finally, uh, even the stolen Supreme Court's Justice Neil Gorsuch was abandoning the president today. A provision in U.S. law requiring the deportation of immigrants convicted of crimes of violence is unconstitutionally vague. The Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday in a decision that Reuters says could hinder the Trump administration's ability to step up the removal of immigrants with criminal records. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four ruling in which President Donald Trump's conservative appointee, stolen appointee Neil Gorsuch, joined the four liberal justices on the bench, invalidated the provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act, and sided with convicted California burglar James Garcia de Maya, a legal immigrant from the Philippines. The ruling was written by uh, Liberal Justice Elena Kagan. It decried the administration 
uh, it was decried by the administration, which had defended this provision. Federal authorities had ordered DeMaia deported after he was convicted in two California home burglaries in 2007 and 2009. Neither crime involved violence. DeMaia came to the U.S. from the Philippines uh, as a legal permanent resident back in 1992 at age 13, and they wanted to deport him back to the Philippines. The Supreme Court ruling upholds a 2015 Ninth Circuit ruling that the provision requiring DeMaia's deportation created uncertainty over which crimes can be considered violent risking arbitrary enforcement of the law in violation of the U.S. Constitution's Due Process Clause. Kagan, in her uh, opinion, wrote that the disputed provision's ambiguity created confusion in lower courts. Does, for example, car burglary qualify as a violent felony? Some courts say yes, others say no, according to Kagan. Gorsuch, in a concurring opinion, decried the law's invitation to the exercise of arbitrary power, which leaves the people in the dark about what the law demands and allows prosecutors and courts to make it up, Gorsuch said. DeMaia's attorney said the decision strikes down a law that has over decades led to the deportation of thousands of immigrants the attorney said the Supreme Court delivered a resounding message today. You can't banish a person from his home and family without clear lines announced up front. Boy, oh boy, what will Donald Trump do when he realizes he can't fire a Supreme Court justice? Speaking of what the law demands, by the way, we'll take a quick break here and we'll discuss what the law demands and doesn't in special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of the president of the United States and where we now are in that case and the others related to it with former assistant U.S. attorney Randall Eliason. Back in a moment for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Breaking rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law and the law one. I fought the law and the law one. Yeah. So far, the law seems to be winning against uh, Donald Trump. But we will see. I think it's a long way to go still. Nonetheless, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Team Trump's possible so-called collusion with alleged Russian interference into the 2016 election is now moving at a pace quicker than uh, at least I can fully keep up with based on the ever-quickening legal filings, court hearings, and media reports on a host of aspects of the case, including the raid last Monday on the office and residences of Michael Cohen, the longtime personal business partner, friend, self-declared fixer, and supposedly 
personal lawyer to Donald Trump. It should be noted, however, that the raid on Michael Cohn was not carried out by the uh, special counsel's office, but by the Manhattan office of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, though it was said to have been based on a tip to those prosecutors from Mueller's probe. The raid seized what both Cohn and Trump described in a heated and at times bizarre federal court hearing on Monday as a trove of attorney-client privileged documents, which they argue should not be reviewable by law enforcement at all, according to the Trump-Cohen legal arguments, or at least they should get to review them first before those documents can be looked at by federal prosecutors. Federal Circuit Court Judge Kimba Wood largely rejected those Cohn-Trump arguments on Monday in court, though she left open the possibility of appointing a special, uh, a so-called special master to review the documents before federal investigators get to do so. At the same time, as you may have heard, Monday's court hearing resulted in the judge's order to reveal Cohn's three and apparently only three legal clients, which... As we learned in the hearing, include Donald Trump, on whose behalf Cohn admits to having paid $130,000 in hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels just before the 2016 presidential election. A top GOP donor by the name of Elliot Broidy, for whom Cohen, it was revealed last week, facilitated a $1.6 million hush money payoff to a Playboy model with whom Broidy, the RNC's deputy finance chair, was having an affair, and as the world was rather bemused to learn at the court hearing on Monday, Cohen's third client during 2017 and 2018 was Fox News's Sean Hannity, Trump and Cohen's loudest defender on Trump's favorite pretend news channel. We don't yet know why Cohen was representing Hannity, though Hannity insists it has nothing at all to do with any payments to a third party despite the fact that Hannity has failed to disclose his legal relationship with Michael Cohen while vigorously defending both him and Trump on his nightly one-hour Fox News show and on his daily three-hour radio program over our public airwaves. So, yeah, it's all getting crazier and more difficult to keep up with by the moment. And, yes, that raid last week on Cohen's office seems to be freaking out the president if the mountain of reports over the past week are anywhere close to accurate. In the wake of last week's raid, talks between Trump's attorneys and Mueller's, have, uh, Mueller's office have reportedly now broken down as they had reportedly been trying to work out conditions for a voluntary interview with the president on all of these related matters. And as reports have been circulating that Mueller is preparing to issue reports on the charge that Trump committed the felony crime of obstruction of justice related to his firing of FBI Director Jim Comey and other actions believed to have been carried out to confound the initial investigation into alleged Russian meddling in 2016. We don't tend to cover the ever-moving investigations uh, and the various speculation and not anonymously sourced reports on it all. Uh, in the same granular detail here, at least that folks like CNN and MSNBC do. But it does feel like the entire matter is getting closer and closer to something, some sort of conclusion, maybe, even if nobody is yet clear what that conclusion might ultimately look like. In the bargain, 
There's been a lot of legal terms tossed around in relation to the various probes and how they may be proceeding, so I thought it might be a good moment to touch base with someone we've reached out to every now and again when we need good, clear, sober explanations for how the law actually works or doesn't. As the prosecutorial noose seems to be quickly tightening around the president of the United States. Randall D. Eliason is a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School. He's also a writer and commentator on corporate and white collar criminal law and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the public corruption and government fraud section. His writings on federal criminal law have appeared in scholarly journals, his own Sidebar's blog, and quite frequently of late in the Washington Post. His latest op-ed at the Post is headlined, Mueller Doesn't Need to Talk to Trump. Oh, Professor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hi, nice to be back. Thanks. There are a number of legal concepts in relation to the uh, to the Mueller probe and to the uh, the one in uh, Manhattan uh, with Michael Cohen that I've, I've been wanting to ask you about. But given the flurry of the activity in federal court over the Cone raid last week and an apparent panic by the president to keep his attorney client privilege documents from federal investigators, I want to start there for a moment, if you don't mind. Trump's attorneys argue that he ought to be able to review the documents seized from Michael Cohen before federal investigators get to do so. How unusual is the seizure of documents of that sort? And how unusual would it be for a client, in this case, the president, to be able to decide which ones can or can't be used by federal prosecutors? I'll take the second question first. As far as I know, there's no precedent for saying the target of the search can look at those documents first and determine what, in fact, should be turned over to investigators. That would, as the government pointed out at the court hearing, that would pretty much defeat the purpose of a search warrant and just end up treating it like a subpoena, mm-hmm. where you, you subpoena the target and they get you know, to respond to the subpoena. Um, one of the purposes of a search warrant is to allow you to go in and seize documents that you think might otherwise be destroyed or not turned over. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the entire purpose of that would be defeated if then you just had to give them to the defendant anyway and let them take the first cut. So that's not going to happen, and the judge has already pretty much rejected that. Um, as to your first question, Uh, A search of an attorney's office is quite unusual, but certainly not unheard of. I mean, there's not a zone of of criminal protection around every attorney's office where we say, you know, no matter what an attorney or someone who has a law license Mm -hmm. does, there's no way you can search their office. So it, it does happen. It's unusual. There's a lot of extra hoops you have to jump through within the Department of Justice to get it approved. And then you're required to put in... Uh, special procedures or safeguards that that we've all been hearing about in these last few days. They call them a taint team or Mm -hmm. a privilege team, where agents or prosecutors who aren't involved in the case are supposed to review the documents first and try to remove anything that's that's privileged. Uh, I think there's... The thing about that search, especially in Cohen's office, the couple important things to remember is, first, there could be a lot in there that just isn't privileged at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, of, of all the materials that are seized, I think it's probably safe to say that you know the overwhelming majority is probably not even arguably pr- privileged because it appears that most of the time he's not really acting as a lawyer. Um, 
in the things that he does. And that, that would mean, by the way, then, that they anything that they seized, they have the right to, uh, to look at at this point. They've already received the warrants and so forth. The only question here would be about attorney-client privileged documents, whatever that right. small set of documents would be. Exactly. And it sounds like that's probably a pretty small portion, like you said, because mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like there's a lot of real attorney-client work going on. Uh, and then even if there is, there's something called the crime-fraud exception that people have been talking a lot about, uh, which is basically if you consult an attorney for the purpose of helping you commit an ongoing crime, then those communications aren't privileged either. Um, so and you can tell about your own mm-hmm. past criminal conduct, and of course that's protected, but you can't consult a lawyer and use their services to help you commit future crimes, and so that could potentially come into play here as well. What, would that mean that they would have some sort of, that they would have to have some sort of evidence that that would be the case with these documents before they uh, even went to a, a, a federal court to get uh, permission to f- for this raid, that they think there is some crime that has happened under the guise of attorney-client privilege before they even uh, d- committed the raid? No, not necessarily before they commit the raid, but it could come into play when they're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. now that we've done the raid and we've got these documents, can we use these particular documents that might on their face appear mm-hmm. to be attorney-client communications? It could come into play then making that determination, whether mm-hmm. that's by a special master or by the judge or whatever. Mm-hmm. The government could demonstrate, uh, yeah, these look like attorney-client communications, but in fact they're not protected because of the crime-fraud exception. Can you help me understand under what circumstances uh, the raid on Cohen would be based on a tip from Mueller, but passed instead to a U.S. attorney for prosecution, uh, as seems to be the case here? Is that a would that be a legal decision by Mueller, or would it be a tactical one uh, to somehow uh, spread out the the various prosecutions? Yeah, I wouldn't really call it a tip. I guess uh, maybe a referral might be better. Referral. Way to refer to it, yeah, mm-hmm. but um, as far as we know, and again, you know, if, because this all involves a grand jury and grand jury investigations, we mm-hmm. can't always be 100% certain, but as far as we know, it sounds like what happened was Mueller came across evidence of wrongdoing by Cohen, potential wrongdoing by Cohen, but whatever it was that he uncovered falls outside of his mandate, mm-hmm. you know, so he has sort of a defined universe of things he's supposed to investigate in mm-hmm. that memo from Rod Rosenstein. And whatever he came across in the course of his investigation that involved Cohen, he felt that it didn't relate sufficiently to his investigation for him to keep it himself. And so what do you do then? I mean, you're, you're not required or expected to simply ignore other crimes that you discover if you're a special counsel. So you refer them to the prosecutor's office who does have jurisdiction. And in this case, with Cohen's office being in New York and his activities being in New York, that would be the Manhattan uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, it's also interesting to note, you know, that they reported uh, when they did the raid that it was based in part on a referral from Bob Mueller. Right. But then in the papers that have come out since, they pointed out that, you know, Cohen's been under investigation there for months. Uh, this isn't something that just started when mm-hmm. Mueller sent this information over. So clearly, you know, whatever Mueller found became part of their overall picture, their overall investigation, but there has been an investigation going on for some time, it sounds like, and they've been monitoring Cohen's emails and other things for quite some time. So this is much bigger than just, you know, maybe some Stormy Daniels referral that that, uh, Mueller might have come across and sent their way. Trump has, uh, for many months now, repeated sort of over and over again, there was no collusion, no collusion with Russia in the 2016 election. 
uh, claiming that the Mueller probe, which has already brought a, a bunch of indictments and guilty pleas, that that has shown no such collusion. But isn't that really a a, a bit of a misdirect by uh, Donald Trump and, and frankly by Democrats and the media who have been using that word collusion. Uh, isn't that a misdirect? Because as far as, you know, A, the, the prosecutor hasn't shown any so-called collusion so far, but B, and I think much more importantly, collusion really doesn't have any meaningful legal definition here. In other words, they're never going to show any so-called collusion because that doesn't mean anything legally, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're, you're right on both points. The, the collusion has been used as kind of a shorthand for what I think we're really talking about is conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. And they have a similar meaning, you know, working with others towards some improper objective. Um, so in sort of that, that, that term collusion has been thrown around a lot. If we're talking about criminal investigation, we're really talking about was there a conspiracy? So was there a criminal conspiracy with Russians to influence the election? Um, that question is still out. So, I mean, that investigation is mm-hmm. still going on. You know, Mueller has indicted 13 Russians and individuals and three Russian companies for a conspiracy, basically, to influence the election through social media. But still outstanding are questions about, was there also a conspiracy involving the stolen emails, the, you know, releasing the emails right after the Access Hollywood tape came mm-hmm. out, you know, coordinating possibly between members of the Trump campaign and Russians to do things like that to influence the election, that question has yet to be answered. So to say there's no collusion is, as you said, it's premature. We don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's still going on. Uh, You argue at uh, Washington Post, Randall Eliason, that uh, Mueller doesn't actually need an interview with Donald Trump to go wherever he may be going, uh, whether it's a a report, an indictment or anything else. Why uh, why is no interview necessary, as you see it, with Donald Trump uh, to to bring uh, a case by Mueller? Yeah, I was just pointing out in that piece that, you know, most of the time prosecutors don't get to talk to the targets of their investigations. I mean, most of the time in an obstruction of justice investigation like this, you know, the target's got a lawyer and the lawyer's going to say, we're not going to talk to the prosecutors, we're going to take the Fifth Amendment, we're just going to refuse to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the norm. So, you know, it, for presidents, of course, you know, historically, they'll talk to investigators because, uh, you know, it's sort of political suicide if you're seen as not cooperating right. uh, with a criminal investigation. But I think in this case, the I've talked for a long time, even though they've been making noise about saying, I want, and the president has repeatedly said he wants to sit down with Mueller, and, and they were claiming they were trying to work things out. I thought for a long time that he will not actually sit for an interview because there's almost no upside for him, and there's a lot of potential downside mm-hmm. because he'll likely lie about something, and then he gets himself in additional criminal trouble. So... Much better for them, not for the country, but better for them. I think, you know, the the smart play at this point for them is refuse to be interviewed and continue to attack the investigation. And you say, well, I'm not going to sit down for an interview with this out-of-control rogue prosecutor Mm -hmm. who can't be trusted. um, And, you know, my lawyers tell me I can't do it. Right. Um, So, and so then Mueller's left in the position that most prosecutors are in, in an obstruction case, which is you're proving intent by circumstantial evidence, not by the defendant's own 
words. And, um, and before I get to that uh, evidence, because I want to talk to you about the uh, the idea of uh, criminal intent as it applies to obstruction of justice. But before we go there, wh- why wouldn't Mueller, if Mueller wants to talk with uh, uh, Trump, and I agree with you, I think it would not be good for Trump, but it would be good for Mueller potentially. Mm-hmm. Wh- uh, why wouldn't Mueller simply uh, subpoena the president and, uh, you know, to to come into a grand jury and be interviewed there? Yep, well, he's got that option, um, and he might. But my sense, I mean, if I'm Mueller, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure I would I would t- go down that road just because I think the president would likely fight it. And so then you're getting into a legal battle uh, that will involve, you know, appeals and months and months probably of a court fight over mm-hmm. whether the president has to submit to a grand jury subpoena. And I think in the end, Mueller wins that fight, but it could be, you know, six months to a year from now. And then maybe even if you go through all that, the president ends up taking the fifth and not testifying. Mm -hmm. Or he provides information that's not truthful, not particularly helpful. You know, you've got to balance all that versus the desire to wrap this thing up and get your report out to the public or your indictments, whatever you're going to bring. And, you know, at least from the outside, looking at it to me, I think it's more likely than not that rather than bother going through all that, Mueller would decide, yeah, I'd like to talk to the president, but I don't have to. Mm. And it's better for me to just go forward. So why doesn't he have to, as you see it? Because he's already got enough uh, evidence in this case to bring a ca- uh, uh, to bring either an indictment or a, uh, a report? Well, I wouldn't say from the outside that I know that he already has enough. Right. What I would say is, it's not uncommon for prosecutors to be able to prove an obstruction case without the witness's own statement. Okay. So uh, it's not like it's some kind of a legal barrier if Trump refuses to sit down. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't all think, oh, well, now Mueller couldn't possibly prove obstruction. Uh, he definitely can if the other evidence is there. Um, but, you know, again, not being in the grand jury, we mm-hmm. don't know for certain the, the quality of the other evidence. But it's not at all uncommon for prosecutors to have to prove obstruction just by other things like, you know, the, the statements and the actions of the defendant at the time, you know, other documents that have been found, mm-hmm. uh, suspicious timing of events, you know, things like that, the testimony of other witnesses, you know, all kinds of things you can use to prove that, that, that uh, a corrupt intent without an actual sort of confession by the defendant. And, and that was one of the things that I, re- I really want to get your uh, explanation for. Uh, you write that the key to obstruction of justice uh, in in a case like this, or in any case, I guess, is proving corrupt intent. I've heard that phrase, that explanation used. I'm not enti- entirely sure what corrupt intent actually is, or at least how one proves or 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 even defines corrupt intent. Can you help me out here, Professor? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, corrupt intent for an obstruction case means basically the defendant knew about some particular proceeding that was going on, Mm -hmm. uh, some court or judicial proceeding or uh, grand jury matter, things like that, and knowing that it was going on, acted with a wrongful purpose to try to impair, obstruct, or impede that investigation. So it's not just that you're trying to influence it, because people do that all the time Mm -hmm. through providing testimony or, you you know, things like that. You could say all of that influences the proceeding. So the key is the corrupt intent, which means a, a knowing wrongful purpose, doing something improper or dishonest to try to interfere with the ability of that proceeding to reach a 
truthful conclusion or a good result. Right? What, what would be a non-corrupt intent uh, situation for obstruction of justice? For just to give by way of an example, so I understand. Well, if, if, yeah. Uh, so, for example, my spouse is going in to testify in the grand jury, and mm-hmm. I suggest to her that she ought to claim spousal privilege and not testify. Um, or I've got a client, and I suggest that they assert their Fifth Amendment right not to testify. Mm. Um, so that's presenting, that's preventing information from the grand jury, okay. from, the, from hearing the grand jury, but by asserting a lawful privilege, right? So mm-hmm. it influences that proceeding, but it's not done with corrupt intent because I'm preserving a lawful right that I have gotcha. you know, by making that assertion. So the distinction is between, you know, influencing the proceeding through, through lawful processes mm-hmm. and influ- or, and testimony and influence in the proceeding in some corrupt way by doing something that's knowingly and wrongfully, you know, dishonest. So in this case, if, uh, in fact, he was able, uh, Trump was able to say, uh, was able to show, for example, no, the reason I uh, fired James Comey, uh, it may have obstructed the investigation, but I fired him because he was just so terrible. Uh, what a disaster he was leading the FBI. The FBI was a mess. I had to remove him versus... I wanted to take him, uh, I wanted to get rid of him because uh, I thought this might stop the legal probe into the Russia business and so forth. Exactly, exactly. And I think, in fact, that's exactly what he would say if it came to it. And that mm-hmm. even in that Lester Holt interview that we hear a lot about, right. you know, where he says Russia was on his mind, in that same interview he says, you know, basically he wanted the investigation done properly mm-hmm. and he wanted to see it wrapped up quickly and he thought Comey was doing a terrible job. You know, so that's basically his defense. Yeah, I removed him. But I had the right to do that, and it wasn't with the corrupt intent to quash the investigation. In fact, it was just the opposite. I wanted to put someone in there who was going to do a better job and wrap this thing up quickly. Gotcha. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, finally here, uh, and this is the, the big question that has been kind of driving me nuts for months. You you suggest in your uh, Washington Post piece uh, recently, Randall, that uh, Mueller's Obstruction case, uh, if he brings one, uh, would uh, likely be a report, presumably a report to Congress, and that that would be more likely, you say, than an indictment. Uh, A, why do you say that? And then B, I guess what is now becoming the age-old question, can a president be indicted? Uh, Well, let's first your explanation as to why you think it will be a report, not an indictment. Well, the answer to the second question ex- is, provides the answer to the first question. Okay, all right. <laughs> so it's because, I mean, Mueller is bound by DOJ guidelines and regulations, even as a special counsel. And it has been the opinion of the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, I'm sure you've heard a couple of different opinions they've issued that say that a, they don't believe a sitting president can be indicted. Um, scholars are debating that, you know, and there's not, it's never been settled, and you know, no one knows for certain, but that's the current position of the Department of Justice. And so I think most people who look at this, uh, you know, DOJ-type people who look at it, think it's very unlikely that Mueller, in such a high-profile case like this, will buck that opinion and decide to indict a sitting president when the opinion of the Department of Justice is that you can't do that. So that's why I think it's really unlikely that he would... Mueller you know, is uh, a career guy, mm-hmm. an institutionalist, you know, believes in the rules and the regulations and following things and doing things by the book, he's unlikely to take such a radical step on his own. And Rosenstein would have to approve it as well, and Rosenstein is similarly 
sort of committed to the rules and policies and, and doing things by the book. So I don't think we're likely to see an indictment of a sitting president. Maybe everybody around him, you know. Right. I mean, that, that only applies to the president himself. Um, but for the president himself, we're far more likely to see a report uh, by Mueller, which I think under the special counsel regulations goes to Rosenstein, and then Rosenstein can decide from there whether and, and to whom to release it. it. If it goes to the public, if it goes to uh, Congress, and, exactly. and so forth, that would be up to him. I, yeah. I, I just, I guess I'm, I'm troubled, uh, Randall, because you know, if Mueller comes across evidence, for example, of something very, very clear, uh, not something that would be, you know, you have to interpret was there corrupt intent or not, but something clear, like. Uh, Donald Trump having participated in money laundering or bribery or something cut and dry like that. I, I don't understand how Mueller could not bring an indictment for something like that. It seems like that ends up, uh, you know, suggesting that presidents are are, are are kings rather than citizens. And he's looking at so much stuff, it would be, I think at this point, more su- surprising if he didn't find sort of cut and dried uh, crimes of that nature. Uh, and then to not file an indictment, isn't yeah. that somewhat counter to what this country is supposed to stand for? Yeah, those are fair points, and that's the debate that's raging, you know, about whether you can indict the president or not. I think the the response is, uh, if you find crimes like that, Mm -hmm. when it comes to the president, the appropriate remedy is not an indictment, it's impeachment. Um, And uh, because the, you know, head of the executive branch can't be prosecuted by his own executive branch, and so you need to remove him first. Mm. So the argument would be, and the Constitution explicitly says, once you're impeached and out of office, then you can be indicted. Right? So hmm. it's not that you're necessarily immune forever, but it's while you're in office as president, you can't be you know, indicted and charged. The proper remedy for any crimes that are uncovered is to go to Congress and say you should begin impeachment proceedings. Um, and then once removed, you know, again, you could possibly be indicted at that time. So a reasonable path could be the uh, special counsel issues a report that gets referred to Congress. Congress decides to impeach, and I know this is all a lot of long shots, but they decide to impeach, uh, Senate uh, convicts, and then those same uh, that same material could be used in a prosecution down the road against that president, in this case Donald Trump, presuming the vice president who takes his place doesn't uh, pardon him the way Ford yeah. did for Nixon. Exactly. Yep, that's definitely one possibility. Like you said, uh, there's a lot of what-ifs in there, including, you know, getting 67 votes in the Senate to impeach yep. uh, with, with the current political environment. But, yeah. Yeah, all right. There's another, you know, there's another idea that's been, again, these are all of these academic debates because mm-hmm. we're in these uncharted waters. I mean, another idea that's been floated around is, well, you can indict him, but you can't prosecute him yet. So you indict him while he's president, and then you put everything on hold. And then the actual trial doesn't happen until he's either impeached and removed or he his term runs out. But then you've got the indictment in place, and things like statute of limitations or things like that. Um, that's another scenario I've seen gotcha. being kicked around. But again, with Mueller, I think given the current DOJ position, I think he's really unlikely to to go that route. You know, and of course I would uh, tend to agree with you what we know given what we know about Mueller, but the fact that uh, the guy that he's investigating has been taking all of these kind of shots at Mueller, at Rosenstein, etc. 
Uh, that seems kind of dumb. I know if I was being investigated, <laughs> I wouldn't be going out and uh, taking all of these shots of the people who are investigating me. So, I, you know, maybe that will uh, change the way they see it, and maybe they'll issue both an indictment and a report just to keep it, it, it fun. Yeah, It's also remarkable and incredible and unprecedented. I mean, you know, yesterday... The head of the executive lawyers, lawyers for head of the executive branch, were in a federal courtroom arguing that the Department of Justice's own prosecutors can't be trusted to do a privilege review. You know, so their their own boss is in there arguing against them, basically that they can't be trusted to do this properly, and, and the judge should take it out of their hands. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It is mind blowing. Uh... Uh, Randall Lyson, really thank you for uh, helping us uh, make some more sense of this because uh, it is just insane. We'll be uh, perhaps bothering you more frequently in the future. You can uh, find his work at sidebarsblog.com, of course, at Washington Post, where he's been op-edding quite a bit lately, uh, and on the Twitters at R.D. Eliason. Professor, greatly appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You bet. All right, quick break, and the madness continues with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I've been trying to keep up with uh, Mueller and Michael (laughs) Cohn and Donald Trump. Uh, You're trying to keep up with Scott Pruitt, as we talk about in our Green News report, but a a late report that uh, it it just keeps coming here today. It's nuts. So uh, uh, according to government documents reported by the Washington Post, Apparently, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt leased a Chevy Suburban with a leather interior, GPS navigation, and added subsequently Kevlar-like seat covers to the vehicle. That's right. Bullet-resistant car seats? Yeah. He's not paranoid at all. He is just, uh, boy, he really thinks folks are out to get him. Uh, he thinks and, pretty highly of himself, I must say. Yeah, apparently he does which we discuss more of in our latest Green News Report. New details coming to light about the growing tab for taxpayers when it comes to Scott Pruitt's travel and security. Federal watchdogs find EPA violated the law on behalf of embattled administrator Scott Pruitt. Senate confirms coal industry lobbyist for deputy EPA chief. Global shipping industry reaches first-ever agreement to cut emissions, plus... 
Tech giants Google and Apple go 100% renewable. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. That's right, Donald. If it weren't for fraud, you'd have won California. (laughs) You're as popular out here as bumper-to-bumper traffic caused by a mudslide caused by fracking. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Scott Pruitt has still not quit? No. Not been fired? No, not yet. What the heck? Not yet, at least. New troubles for embattled Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt, who is now the subject of multiple investigations for his questionable ethics decisions and his spending on security and travel. Questionable. That's a nice way to put it. Two federal watchdogs on Monday reported that Pruitt's EPA broke federal law. The first report from the Government Accountability Office said the EPA violated the law when it spent four to build a special personal soundproof phone booth inside Pruitt's office without first notifying Congress, as is required for such large expenditures. Well, he was going to notify them, but nobody could hear him from inside that soundproof booth. In the second report, the EPA inspector general, in the midst of an ongoing investigation, announced that the agency illegally twisted federal law to grant outsized pay raises to Pruitt's political appointees. Now, House Oversight Chairman, Republican Representative Trey Gowdy of South Carolina and Benghazi fame, is also investigating Pruitt's unprecedented spending on his personal security as well. On Fox News Sunday, Gowdy suggested that he didn't find Pruitt's or the EPA's justifications credible. The notion that I've got to fly first class because I don't want people to be mean to me, you need to go into another line of work if you don't want people to be mean to you. Like maybe a monk, where you don't come in contact with anyone. (laughs) As Pruitt's scandals mount, Senate Republicans quickly confirmed Andrew Wheeler for the number two spot at EPA, meaning that the coal industry lobbyist and climate science denier would take over should Pruitt step down. Which one is worse, Scott Pruitt or Andrew Wheeler? That's a good question. The Intercept reports that last year Wheeler hosted fundraisers for two of the Senate Republicans on the EPA's Oversight Committee. Three Democrats supported Wheeler's confirmation. Cole State Senators Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, and Joe Donnelly of Indiana. All are up for re-election in the November midterm elections. Thanks, guys. Good job. But there is some good news. The global shipping industry has finally agreed to cut its emissions and reduce its contribution to global warming. The shipping industry had been exempted from the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement targets. Now the United Nations International Maritime Organization over the weekend approved the world's first broad agreement on phasing out greenhouse gas emissions from ocean shipping, with a target of reducing emissions 50 percent by 2050 and phasing out emissions entirely as soon as possible this century. That is a big deal and means major changes are coming to how cargo ships are built, fueled and operated. Good news if you're planning a trip to one of your national parks this summer. Interior Department officials had backed off a proposal to double entrance fees to some national parks after a blistering public backlash. But instead, the Interior Department has announced an across-the-board increase of just $5 per car and only at parks that charge an entrance fee. 
That sounds reasonable. Finally, tech giants Google and Apple have both announced that all of their operations are now 100% powered by renewable energy. That includes all of Apple's retail stores, data centers, and corporate offices in 43 countries, including China and India. Both companies say they're now working on getting all of their suppliers and contractors to also move to 100% renewable energy. Analysts say Google's and Apple's push succeeded in acting as a catalyst that spurred their local utilities and regulators to develop utility-scale solar and wind projects. So both Google and Apple, their corporate offices, use 100% renewables. Right. So why aren't all of the other big corporations doing this? Apparently, Google and Apple can afford to do it. It can't be that expensive, can it? I don't think so, but, you know, that's an excellent question. They keep saying, oh, it's going to put us out of business if we do the right thing. Well, at least on this point, Google and Apple seem to be doing the right thing. Good for them. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide, if you please, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. You are the So if uh, if you'd like to send me hate mail for saying something nice about Google and Apple, my email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog if you'd like to unload against me there. Des, you had one thought we didn't have time to get in on yeah. the increased prices on the uh, uh, national park fees. Yeah, the National Park entrance fees. It occurred to me that perhaps that was a negotiating strategy from the Interior Department to put forth a really radical increase, and so that when everybody freaked out about it, then once they did a smaller, more modest increase, everybody's like, oh, okay, it's only 5 to $10. That's all right. They'd get suckers like me to say, well, that sounds good. That sounds reasonable. And and if they keep doing this every year, they'll eventually get what they were going for. Well, they were going to uh, raise it uh, from $30 to $70. Now it's just $35 at the the largest uh, parks. It is because there really is a what, like a $12 billion uh, maintenance backlog. I guess right. the question is how much of that that additional $5 will actually go to the uh, maintenance backlog exactly. and how much will go to private contractors. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, we'll keep our eyes on that. No doubt in the days ahead. That'll do it for us today. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Randall Eliason of the George Washington University Law School, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated, particularly those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Oh, and if you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You're welcome. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 